This is Yawa Radio. A warm welcome to the Yawa Radio podcast. The Yawa Radio podcast is an opportunity again to listen to one of our inspirational, thought-provoking interviews that we have brought to the listeners of Yawa Radio. Yawa Radio is online 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We are your well-being and happiness radio station, bringing the feel-good feeling to every single day of the week. Check us out at yawaradio.co.uk. Now sit back and enjoy this podcast from the Yawa Radio team. Welcome to Jordan Space. Every fortnight, you can join me, your host, Steve Phillip, alongside Danielle and Paul from the Jordan Legacy team, together with some very special guests for an hour of conversation, music, and above all, hope. Welcome to Jordan Space. This show does discuss themes of suicide, and we'd encourage you to take care of yourself by stepping away from the show at any point, should you find the content triggering or uncomfortable to listen to. For support, please visit our website, thejordanlegacy.com, and our help menu options. Shortly, we're going to hear from this week's guest. Before then, and with Danielle away on holiday this week, I want to say hello to Paul Vittles, my co-host for today, and as always, and partner of The Jordan Legacy. How are you, Paul? I'm pretty good, Steve. I was feeling really chilled until uh, the guy opposite me decided to have some building work done and we've got uh, trucks coming up on our pavements. But <laughs> apart from that, <laughs> I'm OK. So it's all happening in the neighbourhood uh, where, where you are at the moment. Oh, gosh. Uh, uh, Paul, look, uh, we received a huge response to last week's show when we were chatting with Police Sergeant Elaine Malcolm. Um, and I understand, actually, as a result of uh, being heard uh, on the radio, she's now been invited to speak and event hosted by the Ministry of Justice, which she's she's really excited about. Uh, what was it that stood out for you uh, from our conversation with Elaine last week? Oh, there's a number of things, but I think um, a couple of things that stuck in my mind uh, since, I, uh, since we did that. Uh, the vivid detail with which Elaine described uh, that day when she uh, knew her father was going to take his own life, you know, all those years ago in 1995, but the vivid detail and how that stayed with her. Um, and then how the police has responded to mental health and suicide uh, issues recently and Elaine's role in that. And you know, her, some of her messages you gave is like the mantra of training, training, training. Yeah, Paul, I mean, it was quite incredible that, that Elaine could remember so much detail about that day. And yet in another way, maybe not so incredible, you know, just a, a highly charged moment in her life um obviously burnt into her memory and and, and will mm, be yeah. probably forever but also as you rightly say you know she talked about the work with the police and 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 you know so much emphasis about the importance of of training that elaine uh mentioned as well um and during our recent uh event uh, our online event let's talk about suicide um we heard insights as well from mental health first aid england trainer tara powell and, and suicide first aid trainer steve carr you know again they both emphasize the importance of training now this spring of course the jordan legacy partnered with mel research from birmingham and they carried out a survey amongst a representative sample of more than 1500 uk adults aged 18 and over mm -hmm. to make sure we had some up-to-date figures which could inform conversations around mental health suicide and suicide prevention 
Now, one of those set of results from the survey showed that one in three people said they knew someone who had died by suicide, and one in eight said they'd lost a close friend or family member to suicide. With so many people being exposed to suicide, Paul, what do you think needs to happen to encourage more people to learn the skills necessary to support someone who may be in crisis and ultimately they may save a life, of course? Well, yeah, again, just going back to Elaine's mantra, training, 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 obviously that's the way the police works and it's the way that emergency services work and lots of other people work as well, that, you know, you are trained to do something because it's anticipated events will happen. You know, there will be health and safety issues on construction sites. The police will be called to, um, you know, to events where, um, you know, th there's a crisis. And so people are trained in these things. So clearly you need to be trained in anticipation of those events. But that's obviously the police recognising now that mental health and suicide are things that they need to be trained to learn how to deal with. Within the general public, it's often assumed that that doesn't really affect many members of the public. But we know from these surveys that the vast majority of the public are exposed to mental health, you know, within their family, within their circles, within their networks, within their, their jobs. Uh, and increasingly, people are talking about this stuff. And then suicide, you know, we had in the survey... 20% uh, of the population as a whole saying that they have had serious thoughts of, of suicide. Um, you know, so that's a, a lot of people in a crisis situation, potentially. So who's trained to, to help in that situation? You know, if we're not anticipating that, if we're not building the capacity to help. And of course, there's lots of training out there, as you've said, mental health first aid, suicide first aid. There's lots out there if people just take that next step and say, OK, I'll, I'll do a, a short course on that. It's really interesting. I mean, you talk about the number of people affected and the National Suicide Bereavement Survey estimated that for every death by suicide, there are around 135 people affected. Yeah. Now, this includes, as you say, family, friends, work colleagues, neighbours, those who were perhaps trying to support that person with clinical care and counselling. You know, there are countless people that this impacts. If, if we're losing more than 6,000 men and women to suicide in the UK each year, that means more than 800,000 people have been affected by suicide every 12 months. And, and this number is aggregated and compounded year on year. MEL survey shows that this translates into two in three UK adults. That's 67% of the adult population having had some form of exposure to suicide. We really do have to look at how more people can learn these important life-saving skills. Yes, of course. And, you know, we've had it over the years in workplaces where there's a call for, uh, you know, physical first aid and a few people put their hand up and go on a training course. And then increasingly, you know, from basically from the year 2000, mental health first aid became a thing. And uh, I've heard so many people over the years go, mental health first aid, that's an interesting concept. You know, I haven't really thought about that. So it's still new. And then we've got all these great courses online. So, yeah, it's just hopefully it's part of an evolution that more and more people just see them as valuable life skills when they go on these courses or if they take online courses and we ask them how it was for them, as we do, as you know, Steve, we follow up with people who've been on mental health first aid courses to keep supporting them. It's part of what the Jordan legacy does. But when we ask them about these courses, they say, actually, it, made, it gave me transferable skills as well. It, it, it's, it's not just asking the direct questions about suicide, which are really critically important but it encourages you to have difficult conversations. It encourages you to, to ask the questions that you might not otherwise ask. And it flushes out all sorts of other stuff. And it teaches you how to listen and 
you know, so these courses are really valuable life skills. They're not just about suicide prevention. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and you mentioned about the hookups and follow-ups that we have with those that have been on the mental health first aid courses. And, you know, the next conversation that we're having this week is is uh, all around listening skills, and, and yeah. which is an important part of conversation, of course, as absolutely. well. Many thanks, Paul. Uh, look, let's take a short break for some music now. And when we return, we're going to be speaking with a remarkable guest who early in 2020, was rescued by police in Dubai following an attempt to end his own life and has since gone on to work with the government and the police in the UAE to change perceptions and attitudes towards suicide. Don't go away. We're going to be right back after this. This is Yawa Radio. Welcome back. Some of the most successful suicide prevention initiatives are often founded by individuals who've had their own lived experience of suicide. Either they've known someone who died this way or made an attempt to do so, or they themselves have attempted to end their own life. On Jordan Space this week, our guest is Chris Hale, founder and CEO of Mindforce DXB, launched in January of this year to build a community in Dubai and the UAE to help people and businesses work through mental health. Welcome to the show, Chris. Uh, it's great to have you join us. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure, Steve. It's yeah, really, really good to see you, Chris. And and shortly, we're going to be talking about your suicide attempt and the fact that if you hadn't been rescued, uh, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation today. Um, before then, I'd like to ask you if you'd share a little bit about how you ended up living and working in Dubai. Yes, of course. Um, it goes back 10 years now, to be honest with you. Um, my family have lived in Dubai for many, many years. My uncle actually moved here in 89 when there was really nothing um, and my cousins grew up here and uh, but Dubai was very very important to the family in, in terms of um, how they changed their whole life my, my, on my on my mum's side and, and I always wanted to experience Dubai I think because I wanted to get away from the UK and obviously I'll go back into sort of my situation over the over many many years of suffering from mental illness and, and, and really quite severe depression. Um, but it got to a stage after a business, uh, unfortunately, um, failed due to obviously me not being able to cope. And I took the decision to leave the UK. And so I've worked in media all my life. You know, I'm a glorified salesman, but I've got to levels where, you know, I've run businesses and I've been senior guy at many publishing houses. And... Uh, I applied for a job and uh, wanted to just leave the United Kingdom. And, and Dubai felt like home. I had a lot of friends that used to work for me that lived over here. And so I, re I received a job offer and moved here in 2013. Um, so obviously, Chris, you, you've got yeah. you know, a lot of family, a lot of friends out there. I can see see uh, the, the draw there. And, and you kind of mentioned a bit about your, your background uh, from a business point of view, um, mm. you've held commercial director positions, as you mentioned, a lot of it in the uh, publishing and media sector, uh, a lot of that focus in the sports industry. Um, look, by anyone's standards, it would seem you've you've had a pretty successful um, career. But, you know, what, what were some of the highlights for you during that career? Well, I, I think the highlights in the career were, were if initially, I actually wanted to be a policeman. Um, I applied for the police force back in the 80s when uh, I left school at a young 17-year-old and uh, 
I was actually turned down at the final selection, which was really, it was, it was a highlight in, in my life because it was something that I really, really wanted to do because a lot of people, I mean, myself included, left school not knowing really what I wanted to do. My, my late father was in the media industry and, and that's what drew me in afterwards. But a sort of highlights of it were, yeah, it, it, I think a lot of them were based on the fact that it was at the times of my life that I actually felt good and I felt as though I could cope um, and I was getting out of my situation of, of, of how I was feeling. Um, I launched my own business in the UK, which was a, a snooker and darts publishing company. And I met a many, many famous sports stars, um, Jimmy White and Ronnie O'Sullivan and people like that, and uh, Phil Taylor, uh, working quite closely with people like Barry Hearn and people like that. Um, and then also over here, I launched um, another business of a sports magazine called Forever Sports. Um, but, the, you know, again, it comes back down to the fact that, yes, I was quite successful and, yes, I was good at what I did. But at the same time, I was hiding how bad I was um, a lot of the time. And, 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 and things, you know, when they were up, they were up. But when they were down, they were really down. And, and, and I lost a lot of everything that I was successful at because I would go back into how I was feeling with my depression. Chris, you said that you've had struggles with mental health issues and you actually used the term mental illness for, for many, many years, 40 yeah. years or so. For, for people who don't understand about mental health issues and, and sometimes think that it's a short period, an episode, uh, do you want to just give us an insight into what your experience has been of mental health and depression? Yes, of course. And it's a very interesting point that you bring up, Paul, because as you say, people sort of look at things like this in a, in a short term basis. But, you know, sometimes it, 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 it's, it, it does last for many, many years. And, I, and it started when I was a teenager. Um, you know, I go back and, and, and to my sort of upbringing as a very sort of strong um, Irish Catholic East London family. My father was very much the head of the family, very powerful and, and, and unforgiving man, but a great man. Um, and he used to put a lot of pressure on me. Um, and there was a lot of physical and mental, um, if you like, uh, almost violence with my father to me, which right. really caused a lot of doubt in my mind because I've always been quite a confident man. Uh, and a confident kid, you know, I was always very good at sport. I wasn't great in in sort of uh, in the education side, but I was a smart guy. Um, but it really he took away a lot of my um, confidence, and that sort of went through into my early twenties and 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 through the eighties when mm -hmm. you know there was a lot of situation where you were unemployed because of the scenarios of that, and and you sort of doubted yourself. And you, you didn't really have a structure of what to do with your life. Um, and then, uh, I, as I said, you know, I got, into, I got into media, but I was always very unsure of whether I was doing the right thing. I would always question myself. And, and, and I, I hid it very well um, in terms of how I would feel when I was alone. I, I became very insular on my own. Um, but as I said before, when we were we were talking, you know, you become uh, almost like an actor because you're you're you you work in sales and marketing, 
you're there to do a job. Um, you, you almost, you know, you are actually acting out a, a scenario when you work in that because you're de talking to different people. But so, what, so what people see from the outside isn't what's going on in the inside. Totally. You know, I mean, I, I, I all the way through, you know, through the 90s, I had some great times. You know, I met my wife. My son was born. I had a wonderful life at certain areas. And, and, and but then again, it would all come back again. And, and, you know, it all really came to a head. I think a lot of it was based on uh, a lot of situations in my in my personal life. My path, my father passing away due to alcoholism. Um, and I made a point of, of actually switching him off of his life support, which was quite a difficult time because he was very, I am my father's son and, and, and my younger brother is very much like my mother. And I am quite sort of hard in a way, but, you know, underneath I'm very soft and I am quite an emotional guy. Um, and, and it got to a stage and then I got divorced and, and a lot of these things are triggers and it's the way that you cope. But at the same time, you know, and the one thing that I will say that we didn't have then is you had no one to talk to. You couldn't open up. And, and I hid it very well in terms of my work with, with I, I, I drank a lot. I, I, you know, there was, there was a lot of, uh, uh, I hid it through drugs as well. And I, I, I know that that's something that I didn't want to do, but at the same time, you know, it was, I had a I had massive addiction issues, and the way that you say that I've opened up, you know, I lied to a lot of people, not because I was a liar, but because I didn't want people to get to know how I was feeling, and and I would hide it all, and and be very there was embarrassment, there was you know I was thinking about I was and at this point you know after twenty odd years I was in a really screwed up way, and 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 but then you know there had to be the the. I was a father, I was a, I was a breadwinner, I was a husband or an ex-husband. I was, you know, the eldest son. I was all these sort of things. I was a manager of, of businesses, but, and I had to be perceived as being okay, even though I wasn't. And, and, you know, I can't actually remember certain years of my life. I mean, I'm, I'm completely blank from sort of 04 to 08. I have no recollection except the fact that I know I was in a really screwed up way. Chris, thanks for sharing that. Look, you know, in the end, this this situation with your mental health became so bad that on January the 2nd of 2020, you decided to end your own life. Yeah. And it it was it's a weird it's a weird situation because I was in complete control and I knew what I was doing. Um, but it goes back to sort of three or four years before that, when I was I'd launched a business here with my best friend in the UK. And we had staff and we were successful. And it was a really good time for a couple of years in sort of 2015, 2016. But then I had a relapse again and, and, and these things were continuously happening. And, and I'm very proud and very stubborn and that I couldn't really, and I've never been able to talk to people because I felt embarrassed. And, and, and also there's such a stigma or there was such a stigma over here and also obviously worldwide with mental health. I lost a business here in, 20, in 2016, 2017. And, and it came to a head in 2019 when I actually owned up after I was starting to practice taking my life. So I would be having thoughts of suicide seven, eight times a day, how I do it. But it came to a situation where I was homeless and I was on the streets in September, 2019. And I was living rough. In 2019, I was sitting in McDonald's 
having a coffee and a donut because it was five dirhams and that's all I could afford because I had nothing. I mean, I was literally, I literally had nothing. And you get lost, I was lost in the system. I was alone and I was in pain. And I, I, apply, I, I wrote to a, a Facebook group called British Dads Dubai. And I said to them, I'm homeless. I'm a British dad and I'm on the streets and can someone help? And somebody replied back to me and his name was Kevin Cotty, Tony Cotty's cousin if you know the West Ham footballer. And oh, okay, Kevin, yeah, yeah. Kevin actually messaged me and said, get in a cab, you're coming to live with me and my wife. She, she told his wife five minutes before I arrived. I'd never met the guy before, but he came from where I came from in London. So we, and we, he, they put me up for a couple of months. But then in December, 2019, I literally was, I had to move out. And, and I, I'd spent, I spent Christmas 2019 on my own. And I was, I was, I was, I, I was really suffering. And I was, it came to a head on New Year's Eve, 2019 stroke 2020, when I was on my own again, and you could see all the fireworks and you knew where people were, but you couldn't, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't function. And, and, and that's when I decided on 29, 20, January the 1st, that on January the 2nd, I was going to take my life. It wasn't for any other reason other than I wanted the pain to stop. Now, you know, just go go to that night, Chris, and and you mentioned the Facebook group you you were part of, British Dads Dubai, and and on that evening you actually left a, a very short post, which I understood read, "Hi dads, bye dads." Now that post, understandably, I suppose, sparked panic amongst members of the group who ended up leaving hundreds of comments asking how you were and where you were. I understand that some of the group's members even got in their cars to try and find you. Now, before we talk about what happened next, I'd, I'd like to ask you a question which uh, you may not be able to answer, may, maybe haven't considered. But my question is, what was going through your mind when you left that post? Was it, in your mind, a farewell message to these dads? And if so, why them? Or at some level, did you also feel it was maybe a cry for help? Well, it was certainly a cry for help. Um, I'd that more that afternoon. I'd spoken to a guy called Vic Villani, and Vic has become a very good friend. I'd never met him before. I'd never spoken to him before, but somebody said he might be able to help me. He was a, a, a guy within the group who had helped people, and we had a chat. And he was going to phone me back, and then I actually messaged him. And I said, listen, mate, don't worry about it. I'm okay. And I put the phone down. And from what I gather from speaking to him, he obviously realized that there was something wrong. And then a few hours later, I was preparing myself for what I was going to do on the second. And I had decided how I was going to take my life. Um, and I did the post of hi, dads, by dads, because... No one wants to die. I don't think so. You know, at one point, you know, you, 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 there's no one is 100% sure about doing what they're doing. And it was a cry for help because I was in complete control and I was completely relaxed in what I was going to do if I wasn't found. But at the same time, I wanted to be found and helped. And, and, and you know, you have to... 
it, it's an interesting situation where you actually feel completely hopeless, but in complete control. I hadn't been drinking. I was some completely sober. I knew exact. I'd I'd planned everything to the to the to the to the minute, and I tested everything. Um, and yeah, it was it was it was really me saying, please, somebody. Please find me. There's a, there's a question, Chris. I mean, just yeah. just wanted to come back to something you you mentioned. Yeah. That I think was really interesting. You you know when you said to to Vic during you know that message, I'm okay. You know in in, in you know clearly you weren't okay at that moment. So was that you deflecting and and well and... that was me that was me actually probably just not wanting somebody else to get involved. Now ultimately, I understand that the police traced your mobile to to the villa that you you were at and it was 1:40 in the morning using ladders that they actually managed to gain access via the balcony where they then found you mm -hmm. in, in in the bathroom now we're not going to mention the method that you you used to to end your own life but what we do know is that that you know police had to resuscitate you i mean this this was really as close as it gets yes and 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 all that stuff i don't know um, you know, I, I don't actually, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't conscious. So, you know, it's, it's interesting when you just said that 140, because I didn't realise it was 140. That's really quite surreal. The, the one thing I do remember is when I did come to, and I saw these five guys in white local dress, and I actually thought they were angels. <laughs> I mean, it wow. sounds really wow. quite weird and, and actually quite pathetic, but... You know, I just saw five guys and I burst into tears and I was just told, relax, you're you're OK. We're 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 going to help look after you. Chris, the, you know, I've heard some of these things before in, in my own work and conversations with, with people who have experienced this. But a lot of people listening might find that what you some of the things you just said, they're quite difficult to comprehend the fact that you was saying you were completely in control. So you're, you're completely at your, you know, at, at your wits end of, in one respect, and you're, you know, planning to take your own life, but you're saying you're in complete control. Can you just explain a little bit more about that? Because we, we had a, a Jordan Legacy event actually recently about talking about suicide and we've encouraging people to talk about these things. And people often ask us, is it a rational act? You know, mm. are, you, are you mentally ill at the point at which you, actually take your own life it is it's very weird because over the years and i think it was i i i think sort of the the few months before i did what i did things really were very very bad and and you know the one thing about being having depression and i you know i i, I use the word depression rather than depressed because i'm depressed when arsenal lose but i i have to you know what i have as an illness is is depression and you know there are so many traits to that depression and 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 you know the fact of the matter was that <clears throat> it wasn't anything to do with you know a lot of people i deal with right now you know have issues with things like finance and jobs and stuff and they lose their structure and you know they're not in a good place the the position with me then was the fact that i knew i was in complete control because i just wanted this pain to stop i had this constant constant darkness and pain in my head and 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 really in my body you know because i was i was going up and down with weight i couldn't sleep i i was aggressive i was non-aggressive i was quiet i was i was i i, I was 
I, I, I couldn't do, I couldn't function, I couldn't communicate. I found it difficult. I didn't want to do things that I liked anymore. I hate, you know, there was so many over the, over the last few years before it happened, you know, I lost complete, if you like, I lost my structure completely. Worst thing about this was that I knew I was actually going to hurt people that I loved, you know, my, my son, my mother, the, my ex-wife, my partner over here that I hurt, my friends, family, whoever. But I was more concerned with the fact that the years and years and years of this build-up and the addictions that I'd had and the hurt that I'd caused people, I felt that the world would be better without me because I felt I hadn't actually, um, you know, I hadn't reached what I should have reached in terms of my life as a person. I always used to think that I'd wake up each morning and I'd be okay. And I, and I would wake up each morning and I would be worse. Yeah, I, you know, it was, I was in control. I wasn't doing anything apart from thinking that the world would be better off and I would be better off not screwing up anymore or not, or not hurting people anymore. Uh, thank you, Chris. Uh, look, we're going to take a break now, uh, listen to some music. And when we return, I'd, I'd like to ask you about the action that Vic took that day um as well as what has changed for you since this is yawa radio welcome back you're listening to jordan space and today we're talking with chris hale who in january of 2020 aged 53 attempted to end his own life but for the swift action of members of a facebook group chris belonged to and the dubai police chris wouldn't be here today to share his story with us Chris, through the, the Jordan legacy, I deliver talks to organisations and groups. And as part of those sessions, I explain about the importance of intervening if someone is concerned about the mental health of someone they know. This is not always an easy thing to do, of course, and people have fears and concerns about doing so. I understand that, that Vic, who alerted the police that day, initially had his own fears about intervening. I met Vic about a week or so after I came out of hospital um, because he came to visit me at a hotel that the police had put me up in. Vic, Vic phoned up the police six times. When you uh, tried to take your life, it's a criminal offence. There was a perception here at one point in time that, you know, the police would just put you in prison. Very unfair and very and not true but it was what people think thought about the police in the UAE. But his wife, actually, his wife, Nina, said to Vic, if you don't get through to the police and this guy does effectively take his life, you will not, you will regret it for the rest of your life. Vic ultimately saved my life. And January the 2nd is Vic Villani Day. I want to talk about something that happened the following day, actually, after you'd made your... Uh, attempt to take your own life when you were in the hospital you know which when I read this um really made me feel quite quite em emotional just you know as you were in your hospital bed um just tell me about who, who came to visit you well after I obviously was taken to Rashid hospital I was put in the psychiatric ward and you know it was I was obviously sort of a only a few hours since what happened and I was with two CID officers and I was in my blue pajamas and I was sort of very, if you like, up in the air. I'd been given medication. Um, I really was still coming to terms with what had happened. And 
Two people arrived, uh, one man, one woman, in national dress, um, and they came up to me and stood next to me on either side. And one of the CID undercover officers who was with me um, took a photo of us. And then they, one, the lady had flowers and the man had chocolates and this great big sort of bouquet and this huge tray of beautiful chocolates. And the, the guy put his hand out and shook my hand. And I said, you know, he said, are you okay, Chris? And I said, yeah, I'm very well, thank you. But can I ask you the question, who the, and I used a, a, a bit of language, <laughs> who are you? And he said, you know, we're Dubai police. This is your home and we're here to look after you. And it was an incredible moment because I became incredibly good friends with this guy who always actually almost became my chaperone building up to when I actually came out of the hospital. They visited me every day. Dubai police gave me 24 hour guard because being in a psychiatric ward is quite, a, 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 is quite an, an eye-opening experience, especially I was the only European. There were many people in there with very, very severe mental issues. Um, you know, there were a lot of people that would, had been in there with self-harming. There was a lot of people, everyone was on medication. Um, there were young local Emirati people, there were North Africans, there were Asians. And, and it's, a, it's, it's something that was quite, if you've ever seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, it was a little bit like that, but a little bit worse. Um, but the one thing that these guys did every day was they visited me. You know, the, what that was quite incredible about Dubai police and what really brought it home was they phoned my family after what happened. You know, they wanted to fly my son over. Their concern and their help for me was above and beyond. I understand that Vic and yourself have, you know, become really good, good friends and you're on a campaign together to bring awareness to sufferers of depression at, at a much earlier stage. You, you've created an organisation called Mindforce, which I'd like to, to talk about in, in a moment or two. But through this work, I understand there's been a new initiative launched in Dubai called Window of, of Hope. The, the police, you know, viewing attempted suicide as something that should be treated as not punished. So... It sounds like you've managed to 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 influence quite a lot of what is going on over there through Mindforce. Tell tell us a bit about the work that you and Vic have been doing together. Vic has been a supporter of me personally before I actually launched Mindforce back in uh, March last year. Um, the law was changed over here where you will not be arrested. I met all the survivors of suicide in 2020 and 2021. After I did what I did, I opened up and told my story completely. I wanted to know more about what mental illness actually was. I wanted to understand what I went through. And I wanted to know about coping mechanisms. I wanted to know about how we can actually break down the stigma of mental health and mental illness and depression and whatever. You know, depression is an illness. Mental illness is an illness. It's not an excuse. In 21, I approached Dubai police um, in November and I, I wanted to launch a business. And I came up with the name of Mindforce. Mind, obviously. Mindforce as a, as, a, as, a, as a sort of thank you to them. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to change the, the perception of, of how people got helped. 
because the one thing over here is that we don't have a national health service because not, so nothing's free. Um, we, didn't, we don't know enough about mental health over here. And so what we wanted to do was I wanted to raise awareness, change the lives of people that didn't have the help that they could get because there are a lot of people over here that don't have insurance, that don't have money and were like me on the streets. The diversity of nationalities, languages, religions over here is quite incredible. And, the, and there's almost like a class structure here as well. And so what we wanted to do as Mindful, and that's with my partner, Simon Walker, who is a lawyer and somebody who's also gone through the fact that his father took his own life. And he's obviously, and Simon suffered from addictions with also Edmund, with the support of Dubai police and also now the Dubai Health Authority and the government. What we want to do is we want to give people the opportunity to find the right help. Because I have been to the cliff's edge, if you like, I've done, I can talk quite openly and quite um, with a lot of authority about this because I've been there. And I can read people that will find and find them the right person that they trust to open up and hopefully get better in how they're feeling. But we want to stop it at source. We don't want them just to go to a hospital. We want to find out whether it's relationship, financial, housing, job-wise, that might be causing them just stress and anxiety. But that can sometimes be perceived as depression, and it's not. So is Mindforce a way of, of kind of bringing people to, together yeah, with expertise? and Yeah, and, yeah and... We're, we're, we're basically a, a facilitator because obviously we can't have charities here. Um, the one thing we want is we want clients, we want businesses to work with us to help us save lives. My, my philosophy is I don't want anyone to get to where I got to and I will do whatever I can with my colleagues and my business partners, my strategic partners, our DHA, Dubai police, Dubai government, you know, we want, we, we want everybody together working as one. But ultimately with Mindfuls, we want to break the stigma, save lives, make the awareness aware, and really just help people that can't help themselves. Chris, you, you, you mentioned a little bit, I think, before we actually started um, recording this, just a, a pre-conversation, but you're talking about how you did and can get very emotional about these terms but then you can also get very clear and you're very eloquent and telling the story and you talked about a few moments where you know the emotion might sort of kick in for you you actually we like to finish on a note of hope in our <laughs> in our events at the Jordan Legacy and our shows as well and I think you mentioned about your mum being proud of you yeah that's it, it was it was a very very weird situation because I, I was I was lucky enough after what happened, I was flown home uh, to see, I hadn't seen my son in four years because I'd lost touch with everybody. I hadn't seen my mum in four years. And my, my son, when I met him was 17. And the last thing I could actually remember about him was he was quite small. And my mum, and, 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 and I met my mum at a pub in Highbrin Islington um, not far from the, the, the Arsenal, which is what myself and Steve, who myself and Steve support. And I met, sat down with my mum and, and, and when she walked in the door, I, I broke down um, because it was very emotional for me to see my mum and, and actually tell my story and be absolutely open with my mum. And whether, whether she would understand it or not, because she was, you know, she's old school and, um, you know, she's a 
a Catholic woman and, and, and really sort of pretty quiet, but you know, they're the strongest people. She's the strongest person I know. And, you know, she's one of my heroes. And, and, you know, when I told her my story and, and she just, I was, I was continuously in tears as we knocked back a few glasses of red wine and, and, and she just looked at me and went, I'm proud of you. And, and, you know, then my son walked in the door, which was even weirder because I hadn't been able to buy him his 18th or his 21st pint. And he was just, he'd not long turned 21. And he walked in and he was about 6'2". And he had this deep voice. And, and the last time I remember, you know, he was a small 17-year-old. And, and, you know, I bought him his drink for his, seven, his 18th and his 21st birthday. And I sat with him and I, I, I told him everything. And, you know, when he turned around and said to me, look, you're my dad. And, and, you know, he said, I'll support you in everything you need. And, and, and he said, I'm glad you didn't go anywhere. And so, you know, to have that from your mum and your son, who are probably the closest people in my life. And, and it, was, it was an amazing thing. And, and, and that's where, you know, the hope side of ending this conversation, which I, you know, really appreciate doing. And I, I think I've actually spoken more in more sort of depth about what happened to you two guys for the first time in a long time is that we can get the help. And I wish, honestly, I wish I'd got help earlier. This has been a, you know, an amazing interview, certainly you know, for me. Um, I think I've, I've felt like I've, I've learned a lot today. And I really want to thank you for coming on Jordan's Space uh, today. So uh, thank you, Chris. My pleasure. Thank you very much, guys. This, this is Yawa Radio. Well, Paul, uh, another um, hugely impactful uh, interview. I, I know I, I was trying to collect my thoughts uh, immediately afterwards to to think back to to everything Chris Chris had had shared. You know, from his his childhood experiences with mm. his father to um, you know a successful career that that he's had, and but but then you know living with with you know mental ill health for for so so many years and the impact that that had on his family. I think there were so many things that I could have taken away you know what really stood out for for you from our conversation with Chris well I think that uh, it, it's really really important to listen to people who've had lived experience of all kinds and particularly the people who've experienced suicidal crisis to that degree and experienced things like depression um, because for many people it's really hard to understand it's hard to imagine being in that situation if you haven't been in that situation and, you know, we talked earlier about training and, and some training can bring that out, but there's nothing better than listening to somebody who's actually been through that, describing it and, and Chris described it in such detail. And obviously he's decided that he wants to talk about it. So he's in that frame of mind now where he can go through it and be incredibly open. Not a, not a lot of people can do that, I find, from my experience. But um, it gave us insights that we would just not normally have. And I'm sure people will be blown away by a number of the things he said. Um, I, yeah, no, I, I agree. And I, I, was, I couldn't help but think, um, you know, it, it, and, and in a way, you know, Chris is a real kind of man's man, you know, um, you know, the way he comes across, he's an East End London guy. And, and yeah. I thought, you know, be so many men in particular that, that would have listened to Chris and, you know, well, I'm this kind of... Um, guy really as well but but I've not been able to open up maybe I can open up now as as a result of hearing what what Chris has, has, has gone through and I remember when I was in Australia and I was working with an organization called Mates in Construction blokes working on building sites you know and, and they didn't want to talk about mental illness 
but they wanted to talk about suicide because they saw it as a problem they could fix. <laughs> so we had some really interesting conversations with the practical aspects of this. And when you input what Chris said as well about what he went through, it really challenges people. So when he was saying, um, you know, that he just, you know, he couldn't function. He just literally couldn't function. Uh, so again, some people find it hard to relate to that. He decided he was going to take his own life. His own life. He'd, he'd, you know, he'd planned it, and um, and he, he felt very calm about it. You know, I think that's really mind blowing for people. And those who've lost loved ones to suicide, including in my own family, often say that at the, you know, the, 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 in the few days before, they seem quite calm. And and it's again, it's really hard because you're trying to spot signs, and people often think, oh, actually, they seem to be getting getting better. Yeah. Others seem to be okay, um, but you know, Chris helps us to understand that moment in time where you think, right, yeah, I'm going to take my own life. I've planned it. I know what I'm going to do, and and there is that sort of calmness, and it almost seems like a very rational act. And and he said he was in complete control. And again, some of the language that he used, I'm sure, will really challenge people. He felt in complete control, and yet he was doing something to, to which to most people would seem completely rational and a sign of mental illness. He'd had the mental illness, he'd had the pain from mental illness. He saw suicide as the solution to his problem, as the solution to the pain, yeah. the solution to not hurting anybody else. And so he went ahead with this act. So I think, yeah, you know, it's going to be tremendously important for people to listen to that and try and understand that. And again, going back to training, you know, get a basic training at least to this level to understand these things so you can intervene better or you can help people in prevention better. Yeah, I, I think it's a really, really important point to to end on. Uh, thank you, Paul, uh, as, as always. That's an, another episode of Jordan's Base uh, under our belts. We're going to be back, of course, in a, a couple of weeks. And to everyone listening, I, I hope you've uh, found this show you know, really impactful, useful and, and helpful. And if you have any comments or questions about any of the points discussed today, uh, please do find us on Twitter at Jordan Legacy UK. Uh, or at the same address on Instagram. You can also visit our website and get in touch there at thejordanlegacy.com. That's it from Paul and me, uh, your host, Steve Phillip. Look after yourselves and those close to you. This has been Jordan Space, and we look forward to having you join us for our next show very soon. A big thank you for taking the time out to listen to this podcast from the team at Yawa Radio. Remember to check us out live online 24 hours a day, seven days a week at yawaradio.co.uk. And if you'd like to join us as a guest on Yawa Radio or as a guest on the Yawa Radio podcast, we would love to hear from you. Simply email studio at yawaradio.co.uk. Once again, a big thank you for taking the time out to listen. This is the Yawa Radio podcast. Copyright applies. With inspirational guests from around the world, inspirational quotes, the inspirational book of the week, the meditation hour, the quiet zone, and feel good music. Yawa Radio is about well being, happiness, and finding the beauty within. Enjoy. Be beautiful. Be happy be inspired. This is Yawa Radio.